1: So, Guy, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK.
2: We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I mm-hmm. think I'm
1: looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason's All Sort of Secrets. You
2: did, and in fact that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's U-boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So, join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon,
1: and me as we celebrate the early years with you know that incredible—it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd, it goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. Goes up to 1972,
2: with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff—stuff stuff you've never mm. heard, stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard. Frankly, obviously. Echoes is the big sort of—you uh, know—what uh, is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah,
1: I never met Magnum. <laughs> was he, was he, was he, um, anyway, tickets are on sale now, and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk.
2: And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, Gary. Hey, Guy. How are you? I'm all right. Uh, muddling through. Now, this is um, very interesting. We're taking a bit of a turn here, aren't we? Because it's someone who's sort of. You've always you know, been a turn. As, well, <laughs> one of my turns. Um, uh, in fact, you can hear the turns outside as it's brightening. Um, <laughs> I'm here all week. Try the veal. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, someone who actually more of a satirical comedian than a musician. In fact, not a musician. Although he is quite a yeah. handy bass player. He
1: is a handy bass player, isn't he? I mean, how do you judge these levels of what's good in bass? I have no idea. You know, I mean, it's yeah.
2: Just- I, I don't really know. Um, and. You know, heaven, <laughs> the, the, far be it from me to cast the first stone. <laughs>
1: I've been listening to his, um, yeah, he's a, he's he's a, it's a multi-character we're having on today, isn't it? Really, it's to be honest, it's not one person. I feel like we're we're about to interview about six people.
2: Exactly. Yes, it's a series. And, I, and I, in it's a microwave podcast series. And, and I, I am quite
1: concerned <laughs> that he doesn't, you know get too vicious with us with uh, Principal Skinner or something.
2: Yeah, he could. Yes, exactly. I, I've, I've been listening. <laughs> it's the children who are wrong.
1: I've been listening to his um, his podcast radio show that he does. And the last one he did, he said the two uh, words he, he he dislikes the most are, Hey, guys.
2: All right, so, so let's try not to say that. Right, I mean, he's actually very much like a Peter Cook sort of character, isn't he? He's sort of in the way he's because I've but his because his podcast is very deep dive American politics.
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah, and he's done stuff on Nixon and the Nixon tapes. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. Should we let it roll?
2: Yep. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. That's well, a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget
1: about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. They're sitting in the back of the car coming into London, they're brilliant. Remember me? I'm in a band now.
0: <laughs> it's called
1: Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah, to Get two good things, at yeah. something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours.
2: The Rock Hunters Podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Harry, yes. Yeah.
1: I guess you're not going to say hey, guys, to us, are you? Because I heard hey, your radio hey, show.
3: Hey, guys. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Good night. Um, yeah, I'm a diehard radio guy, but I know that... Uh, I'm of a dwindling breed, so I had to acknowledge that there were other audio devices. The idea that people will have those smart speakers in their homes is just so ludicrous to me. Uh, why don't you just invite the uh, entire intelligence division of your local police department?
2: Oh no, that was—that's right. We've gone from we've gone from people sort of worrying about being wiretapped to literally yeah. saying, "Hey, wiretap! What was that recipe?" Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know.
3: Um, The historical oddity in all this is that the Internet of Things, so-called, which is the smart home, the whole concept, the whole product line was introduced for the first time three months after Edward Snowden made uh, public how much surveillance we were already subjected to. I've literally
2: just listened to your podcast on that. Yeah. You Mm -hmm. took a very deep dive. It was brilliant.
3: Yeah. Yeah, didn't you people hear what Edward Snowden said? Now you just want to put this stuff in your home voluntarily? <laughs> yeah.
1: Imagine, nice. imagine if Nixon had had Alexa.
3: Oh, my God. <laughs> well, he would have had a real love in his life.
2: <laughs> oh, no. <Come> <laughs>
1: and and how, how is the show going? You do this thing called Le Show, which I think, I, to be absolutely honest, Harry, I wasn't aware of until just recently, and I've been listening to it. It's How do you, how do you write such vast amount of comedy in such a short space of time?
3: Um, I I've always I got trained when I was in my 20s by doing a daily radio show with some with a group about uh, making fun of the news. And uh, deadlines are amazing things. You know, you think you got nothing and all of a sudden, you know, you look at the clock and you go, I gotta have something and
2: something comes. Because you do you used to you did a student newspaper as well before, didn't you? You were you. Oh, always- uh, when I was a student, yeah. You're very yeah. much of you're very much of the kind of Peter Cook ilk, can not you? You've come. Oh from- my God! What a compliment!
3: Yeah. Except for the alcoholism. Um, <laughs> pardon me, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, I mean, I I grew up adoring Pete and Dud, so uh, that's a that's a huge compliment. I still have a forty-five of <laughs> uh, Peter doing a character called the Misty Mister Wistie or the wisty Mr. Mis- Wistie, Misty,
2: Mr. Wisty. Was that the one who spoke like that? Yeah, a, yeah. The, the, uh, the, the guy was, who, it, actually, who actually, we then, what's extraordinary, is a few years later, we actually voted him prime minister because it was literally, <laughs> it was John Major, right? It was, uh, yeah. no one had ever heard that voice before. Yeah. Got, and then someone sort of said, <laughs> my God, so, suddenly he's prime minister. He's running with it. <laughs> I missed,
3: uh, yes. Yeah, but uh, I, that was Pete as a solo artist, but I just... Uh, uh, adored their work and his work.
1: Yeah, because you started off in that doing sort of political satire, but what, and in a way that's, that seems like, I don't know, That's that was an English history to that, you know, th- 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 that was the week
2: that was, was that what it was called, Guy? Yeah, yeah. The, well, they, that's what I was thinking of the Peter Cook thing, the Establishment Club and all that, you know,
3: he Yeah. yeah through the yeah, footwear, yeah. So. There was a, There was a guy in Los Angeles on the radio who uh, played uh, British comedy records every Sunday morning. Oh, wow. Right? I was addicted to all that stuff. As, yeah. I'm the guessing Goul- that
2: was public radio. That no, like
3: a- that was commercial radio.
2: Oh, okay. It was, it was he- like a KCRW type thing.
3: No, he had. He was on multiple different commercial stations. Oh, okay. he, he had a shop called the Continental Shop, uh, where he sold uh, the English version of Heinz baked beans and all that stuff for the expats. And uh, so he advertised his own shop on the show. Uh, so it was. It was not public radio, but. Uh, the Goons were actually on uh, NBC radio here for a little while. So, I mean, I really got a, a pretty good education in British comedy. Because
2: ah, that's what's interesting for us is is how many, especially through the Saturday Night Live, and I know you were with them for a bit, but so much of that crew all were all Canadian. And and it seems to me that because of that, they had the joint thing of British comedy was part of their, you know, it was on telly every night and on their radio yeah, all the yeah, time. So they had the yeah. joint thing. Well, well, I, I never I, thought I guess, in L.A. you would have that.
3: I, I guess you would call me, therefore, the epithet most feared down here, an honorary Canadian.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what
1: are you kind of, you know, growing up in, what sort of culture is it in your house that is making, you know, your parents turn on that kind of a radio program?
3: Oh, they didn't turn that on. They turned on American stuff. They were both uh, European immigrants and uh, they were, addicted to American comedy, Jack Benny mainly, which was so remarkable that I ended up being on that show for
2: That's right. But at the age of what? How old were you? You were Seven.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Seven. And I walked through that magic door.
1: How did it happen? Go on, tell us.
3: Well, I had, you have a, a, a keyboard in uh, your shot. I uh, was made to uh, take piano lessons starting at the age of four. And my piano teacher uh, was a woman named Hazel McMillan. And uh, her daughter was a, an actress, a child actress, well, a teenage actress at that point. And, and a couple of years into teaching me, Hazel McMillan decided to change careers. So she be, decided to become a, a representative for child actors, an agent. And she called my parents and said, "Do you mind if I try to get Harry some work?" And they went, they, as I said, European immigrants. They went, okay i guess so and uh eight months went by and we heard nothing from her and then she called with an uh, an audition for the jack benny program and i walked in and uh i was a good reader and uh i aced the audition and boom i'm in
2: did you get it Were you did you understand what was that mean the... oh my god
3: did i get it this was like the answer to my dreams i i I really didn't like the kid. I had a perfectly happy childhood, but I just thought the kid thing was kind of jive. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so the idea of of hanging out with not just grownups, but the the seemingly like, the hippest grownups in the world, the people at the Jack Benny Show, it included yeah, Mel Blanc, who was the voice of all the Looney Tunes cartoon characters.
1: You are the new Mel Blanc, after all.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Right. But uh, so it was just an amazing thing, and I, I dug every minute of it. I I would be in regular public school half the time and half the time off working either for Jack Benny or-
2: and What kind of guy. sketches? What That's kind of- it like Gary, Gary went to a theater school. Gary was in lots of yeah. sort of children's films when he was a kid. Ah. Yeah, you were yeah. probably both unbearable.
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember <laughs> when I first, I went to my first uh, senior school when I had took the first six weeks off with a chaperone to go and shoot a film. And God, boy, did the kids love me when I got back. <laughs>
3: uh, and, and are you, you're being facetious, of course. Right? I am. Yeah, I had, uh, I had kids, in junior high, middle school here, who knew I was uh, on TV and stuff and and used to gather around me at lunchtime and say, ooh, that sandwich looks good. And uh, (laughs) so uh, my my weapon of choice, since I was uh, younger and smaller than they were, uh, was to tell my mom. My mom made all sorts of different sandwiches for lunch. And one of the things she made, which uh, was my favorite food from my earliest memory, was, hold on to your stomachs now, beef tongue. And so I said to her, for the moment, don't give me anything but beef tongue sandwiches. When <laughs> the so kids at school said, ooh, that looks good, what is that? I said, beef tongue.
2: Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> so the thing is, Harry, you're a pretty decent bass player, right? I'm, I'm okay. Yeah, so where did the music come from? Was there a genuine love of music? I mean, it's was it always satirical or...?
3: No, I mean, my, my dad, uh, this is the, the kooky thing about me and Judith, her dad was an opera singer. My dad was trained to be an opera singer, didn't get to actually perform because they had to flee, uh, Aust- he, he had wow. to flee Austria, but he was a trained operatic baritone. We went to uh, classical music concerts all the time. They had a great record collection. I was deeply into music when I was in high school, which was not a pleasant time for me when I wasn't working. And I had to actually show up at high school. I had a soundtrack in my head of my favorite, uh, then favorite music, which was Frank Sinatra with the Nelson Riddle Orchestra.
2: Ah, oh, yeah, and the I Riddle arrangements are the best. Humming yeah. the arrangements,
3: not even Sinatra's vocals, but the arrangements as I'd walk from class to class, so music was a a very important part of my life.
2: You had everything for the kids to hate you. You had your showbiz success, you were humming Nelson Riddle arrangements. No, God. Yeah, I fit fit right in.
1: (laughs) And eating beef tongue. But listen, I mean, maybe, is this what gave you the weapon of a sort of slant-eyed view of the world?
3: the outsider slash insider. So I wanted to know everything about how the place worked because my parents didn't know they were, as I say, immigrants. So it was my job to sort of figure out how this place that I had been born into worked. Uh, but yes, I would, I, I, I think that that is my stance is outsider slash insider. That is to say an outsider socially who happens to know all this inside stuff.
1: Uh, was Were magazines like mad? Were they like important in your life? Did they, was that a good big influence?
3: Yeah, Mad was a, was an influence. Um, certainly, I read every copy of it. Um,
2: you sound like you were probably too grown up for the for that by the time you were. 10. Well, I
3: was too grown up. For crack. <laughs> I was I was too grown up for Cracked. Oh right, just, yeah, yeah. Just the right target audience for Mad, um, but the real influences were performers, were as I say, Pete and Dudd. In this country, there was a satirist who did uh, great parody versions of hit records called Stan Freeberg. And then he made his own amazing satirical album, an LP called Stan Freeberg presents the United States of America, which was supposed to be the first in a series of records making fun of American history. It turned out to be only one of two, but it was wickedly funny and uh, incredibly daring for its time. It, it had a lot of music in it. Uh, it was basically some sketches and a lot of songs with the, the Billy May Orchestra back in oh, not couldn't, right. couldn't get Nelson Riddle, but he got Billy right, May. Right,
2: right, right. Uh, so uh, would Tom Lehrer have fe- f- featured? Tom Lehrer you know,
3: very much so. Uh, he had a record which was a 10-inch LP that came out at, from apparently nowhere, and there were these songs that were making fun of the Catholic Church and the Boy Scouts mm-hmm. and, you know, these supposedly untouchable Marx, and uh, then he got famous a little bit because the American version of that was the week that was, had him on doing a song every week on television. So for a while, he had a very successful career touring with very, for the time, as I say, transgressive material.
2: Yeah, his retirement was actually the greatest gag and greatest political trick anyone's ever pulled off. I don't know that, what was it? He basically retired when, um, uh, when Kissinger got awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. He just said, I can't come up with anything. As satirical but, as that ever, <laughs> I quit, and he did. Yeah,
3: he did. Yeah, it, wasn't, it wasn't a gag. Uh, he, yeah. he he said, "You, I can't get, go any further than this."
1: But I think people in the UK don't fully appreciate how much more dangerous it must have been in, in that sort of post-McCarthy period um, of uh, in America to be at all critical of of the American Dream and of the of the you know the business of America. You know, it was kind of more accepted here and uh, easy, you know, people, it wasn't as dangerous. I mean, did you, did you sense that danger?
3: Well, um, eh, not really. I started, in 1968, there was a radio show that started up to make fun of the news and I was part of the group. And we were on a, a big rock and roll station in Los Angeles. We didn't get syndicated outside of LA. But as far as LA was concerned, anything yeah. went. The only time we got in trouble and this goes maybe to your point, the then vice president under Nixon, Spiro Agnew, was visiting a veterans hospital, and of course this is right in the middle of the height of the Vietnam War. We did a sketch about him visiting a, a, a veterans hospital, and you heard in the background of the voices of Agnew and whoever he was meeting, the voices, the sounds of these veterans groaning in pain. And the manager of the station happened to hear that, you know. Uh, usually, management didn't bother to listen, which was our saving grace. And uh, he said, you have to now do a sketch making Spiro Agnew look good.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and uh, Who was burning in pain then? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, I took the chicken shit way out and said, I'm not doing that. And the other guys in the group, it's up to them to do that. And they did
2: how a al- how in tune was what you were doing with satire with the the actual counterculture that was going on, all the music and everything was there an alignment there, or were you was everyone kind of plowing their own furrow?
3: Well, you know we had a totally different job to do, which is to make fun of something of, of three somethings We did three shows a day every day, oh, which is God. a very different task than you know writing a protest song once a month. So- <laughs> Um, <laughs> we were trying to find what was funny in each day's news and, uh, didn't really ca- care much. Mm-hmm. I mean, we cared. We all knew the war sucked. I particularly, cause I'd spent six years trying uh, successfully avoiding it, but, you know, we had to take, take the stuff as it came. Uh, I, I'd put it that way. So our, our fire was aimed in a much broader array of targets.
1: Yeah. And sometimes it hit and sometimes it didn't. I guess, but, but you, you also—I mean—but I, <laughs> I guess that <laughs> if you're working that fast, you know.
3: Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, we had a much better batting average uh, in our third year. We were on uh, another station in L.A. radio station, and we had only one show a day to do. And I think that allowed us to do two things: more time to write and more time to produce stuff that really sounded good. I was really concentrating on the latter. Uh, I thought that we'd gone, we jumped the tracks from AM to FM, which in those days meant we had a better toolkit to work with in terms of audio, audio effects and all, you know, all that stuff. So I was really focusing on making, helping to make the shows just sound a lot better.
1: When did you find your voice, Harry, that you could do this? You had this skill.
3: Uh, well, I think a couple of months after I found my nose. No, just kidding. <laughs> I was, uh, I, my dad had a tape recorder, portable tape recorder, and I had some friends that I could induce into doing little radio shows with me. So probably that was the the beginning of it if you'd happened to buy the house and heard that stuff. Uh mm-hmm. this was before voices changed, you know, in terms of me and my friends. So they all sounded
2: <laughs> Yeah.
3: And I I realized I was thinking about this much later imagining my parents hearing it in the other room and it all sounding the same to them, and realizing I wasn't training my voice at that age. I was training my ear because in my head uh, right. <clears throat> I knew what they sounded like, and I had little compartments for each voice that I was trying to do. So it was a it was good well, self training.
2: So I was wondering if you to say that you were mentored by Mel Blank at the age of seven, and he taught no, you know no, the, no no it
3: never <laughs> it never happened. It never came up.
1: Did you ever meet him?
3: Oh yeah yes oh, yeah. yeah the- so, he was on the Jack Benny show.
1: But you, he took, Did he take you? Did he was like, "Hey, kid." No, no. He, <gasps> I want that scene in the movie when they do your life, right in the biopic.
3: I know it's going to happen. He said, "Hey,
1: kid, what oh, is that. that?
2: Beef tongue? Get out of here." Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> he was just a, a, a lovely guy who uh, took you know a father fatherly, not a Catholic, not in the Catholic sense, uh, fatherly interest uh, in me because he's he had a son the same age, Noel, who ended up doing Mel's voices when Mel passed away, but never, never, ever went, here's how you do Porky, here's how you do Bugs. No, no, <laughs> no.
2: I, um, years ago, I worked with Michael Jackson, and uh, but I I, I I never actually met him. He was in the room once, but he was hiding. But I got to, his producer it was, was a good friend. Let me dude, 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 the, he was hiding under the desk. He was hiding under the desk. We all had to pretend he wasn't there. We all knew he was there. Um, but wow. but 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 his producer Bill show me. He had this thing which was a Walt Disney character mic, which is from the '30s, which is the thing they used to use for, voice. and it had, and no one knew quite how it did it. But it's sort of caricature, whatever character you did, it made you more of a caricature. It had some weird thing with the ribbon in it or something. <laughs>
3: I'm, I'm I'm giving you my skept, skeptical look.
2: Yes, because I know I, I, I was always, but, you know, well, if if they say it's the Disney character, Mike, then it's the Disney character, Mike, you know. So.
1: Yeah. Then you ended on, and you did Saturday Night Live after that. Was
2: that... No, you hate, well, you, you're you on record as, as absolutely. Oh, I loathed it. it. Which I is great, because there's this fantastic thing of this great mythical world of Saturday Night Live in the 70s. Oh, my God, it's, you know, it's just, man, there are all those people, but you no, know, no, they hated it.
3: Yeah, it was... Um... When you when you have a psychopathic boss, weird th- things happen.
2: Is that are we talking about Lorne Michaels here? Oh,
3: yes. we might be. Yeah.
1: <laughs> what was it like then? So to explain some of that. Well,
3: I I was a pro. Uh, I you know done this, this business as a child. I then came back. Uh, I had just produced a pilot for a, a comedy show for ABC where uh, Spinal Tap first originated. Uh, so I kind of knew the ropes, and Lorne's main main approach in those days was to hire people who pretty much had never been on TV before. This was their big break and uh, therefore... Second you,
2: City a lot, wasn't it? Or, yes.
3: Uh, yeah. uh, but therefore you could get away with murder because they didn't know what was regular television stuff and what was the fever dreams of a psychopath. That's the title, My Autobiography. How did you know? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, for an example, this was something that I was really aware of because right about this, this was right about the time that of the... Uh, uh, 700 people self-suiciding uh, well, at uh, Jonestown. Oh, Jonestown, right. and, and we were reading a lot about how Jim Jones ran the place. And one of the key things that he did was to fuck with people's body clocks. And that's exactly what was happening at, at SNL. Every day was on a different clock. So by the end of the week, you, you'd had a day that started at uh, seven in the evening. You'd had a day that started at two in the morning. You'd had a day that started at 10 in the morning. Um, I it, mean, it, so by the end of the week, you you had kind of lost uh, contact with Earth. It was uh, in those days. I think it's well known, very druggy yeah, uh, yeah. and not not a good drug. And um, so many of the ways of the. I actually read a book about a show that was almost exactly that same show, but it was done in the fifties. It was called Your Show of Shows, and it was on in prime time. But it was sketches, musical act hour and a half live from the same frigging studio. And it started the week with the writers coming in on Monday morning and writing the show on Monday. And then the actors had four or five days to rehearse it. And at SNL, it was run more like a a college dorm. Nobody was really encouraged. People were discouraged from coming in to start writing until middle of the night, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, which left no time for rehearsal. And so people were just reading cue cards.
2: But what would be the point of that other than to just disorient? Are you saying it was a cult? (laughs)
3: Well, the point of that would be, everything was moved later in the week. So it didn't really leave a lot of time for people. People were scrambling. Didn't leave a lot of time for people to uh, disagree with the producer or say, how come this sketch isn't in or why are we doing this? You just had to head down and scramble so it was uh if you were the producer it was a a much more comfy way of uh, running a show so
1: so who was in that writing room with you
3: um the first time around because i went to i went to that show um, just proving that smart people can be really stupid um christopher guest
2: Ah. Billy,
3: billy crystal uh
2: martin short that's right you did fernwood tonight didn't you Yes, I did. Which I saw the first time I went to America, which I thought was the funniest thing ever, almost live and nearly from Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that was, I love uh, that, really. power tennis for the blind.
3: Brilliant. Yeah, that was the first time I think uh, a lot of Americans were exposed not only to Martin Mull, but to the, the late great Fred Willard, who was oh, just yeah, yeah. most astonishing. You know, I, I know a lot of people in comedy. I understand a lot about many of them. <laughs> I, can't, I could never figure out Fred Willard. He was like on a comedy wavelength from Mars. It was just so remarkable. <laughs> and, and so, un- you know, the, I, I was in a movie with him, a Christopher Guest movie, and we were in a scene together. Fred, Fred was going to interview, Fred's character was going to interview my character. And the only piece of direction I ever got from Christopher is he's walking me to the chair where I'm going to sit and be interviewed by Fred. We're, we're walking there, he puts his arm around my shoulder and he says three words, don't even try. <laughs> what, what movie was this? This was uh, For Your Consideration.
0: Oh,
2: for, right, right. oh yeah, yeah. For, hang on, Fred Willard, I'll make sure I'm thinking of the right guy. Who He's uh, on the Air Force Base in Spinal yes. Tap. Yes, yes. yes. Oh. getting a little long there myself, yeah. Yes. Oh, no, he's, a, yes, he's And he was uh,
3: Mark, He was Martin Mull's sidekick on- uh, That's right, weekend. yeah. And I would be in there every day kind of being a little bit critical of, of some of what was being written by others. Uh, and then I'd hear Fred take that material and make it pure comedy gold. Uh, yeah. Is-
2: oh, well, like best in show. I mean, in uh, oh, I mean, his well, yeah. performance, I mean, why? Yeah. And, and are you in those writing
1: rooms for, you know, explaining to people who have never been in one, um, including <laughs> myself, um, do you, do you- Bring in the a room piece. where it happens. Do all of you bring in a piece and say, let's work on this. I've got an idea or just some things get improvised and battered around immediately. I mean, and what's your role in there? Where, 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 where are you comfortable?
3: Uh, I'm the typist. <laughs>
1: <Seriously>. <laughs> it's funny yeah. you,
2: no, it's funny you say that though, because, every, uh, because when I tried writing comedy, I remember um, Ian Lafrenet the great, great comedy, right, no. right. <laughs> uh, said to me, are you the writer or the pacer? <laughs> because, because apparently at like all comedy partnerships, there's the guy who types and there's the guy who paces.
3: Yeah. Well, so the you're, guy who um, types, but are you
2: a typer or a pacer?
3: <laughs> I, I'm a, definitely a typer. Um, I've, I've known comedy uh, teams like that. I would write when Christopher and Marty would, uh, and I would write together, which happened a lot in that show. I think everybody was, was sitting, but I've always been the typist because the one thing I learned in, in high school was how to touch type. Uh, really uh, fast. So, you know, if a, a typist who doesn't slow down the flow of ideas is... yeah, That's,
2: uh, that's priceless,
3: yeah. It is priceless. It it does give you a bit of control because, you know, you'll hear things and then you, other things you won't hear, you know. It, also,
2: it, you suggest a gag and they go, no, do this one and you just put your one in because you're the one. down.
3: Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I wouldn't be like that, but... You
2: know, <laughs> I mean, you're
1: uh, chucking in ideas though, I take yeah. it.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, in answer to your question, uh we wouldn't uh, come in with uh, stuff already to work on. Uh It would always be, it's a quarter after midnight, what the fuck should we do? <laughs> <laughs> sort of like that.
2: And so is it here that the Beast was born?
3: Well, Michael wasn't there, but okay, uh, Christopher was. Uh, the, that tap was born on this pilot that we had done uh, before I went to Saturday Night Live, which was a pilot for ABC. And it was uh, called The TV Show. Uh, And it was uh, basically, you you start the show behind a guy who's sitting in a lounge chair with a remote and a big TV in front of him. And you're watching what he's watching. And that was the format of, and it's an hour long sketch show making fun of whatever is
2: on TV. And did this guy actually have to sit there for the hour?
3: That was, no, he <laughs> he did his stuff and then left. That was, that guy was Rob Reiner, who was the- Oh, director. right, 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 right.
1: So go and explain how this first idea, because look, you're the only person who's not in a rock band officially, as it were, uh, Harry, that we've had on this show. So you've got to pay- Apart oh, oh, from Ian
2: Lafrené, the, we've, had one, the, we've had one other great comedy- Ian person. was in a rock band?
1: No, no, he was Actually, on our show. Ian was even <laughs> further away from rock music than you are, but he's what you are the uh, you know. So you got to pay your dues here, and yeah. we have got to talk about being in a rock band, especially okay. fantastic band. <laughs> what was the, I have so yeah. much to
2: say, and I've so, yeah so much to accuse you of. Um, okay. but, <laughs> what was the first germ of the idea? Whose was it?
3: Uh, we were, as I say, we were doing this TV show, and um, one of the things that was on TV that we were making fun of was a late night music show called Midnight Special, which was hosted by this rock DJ called Wolfman Jack. Yeah. And Rob yeah, did yeah. really good Wolfman Jack, and he didn't play an instrument, so he was Wolfman Jack. And so we just had to create a band to perform in that, in that uh, parody of, of Midnight Special. And, and Michael still has the little piece of paper where we were figuring out what the name of the band would be. And then we wrote a song called uh, Rock and Roll Nightmare. And in, the, in that era of Midnight Special, bands would perform live, but they would also create these little proto videos. It was before actual videos were out, but they, while they were on this show, they create some kind of video to go with their song. So they'd be performing live and then they would dissolve to this video. So we did a video for uh, Rock and Roll Nightmare. And uh, at the end, it was supposed to be uh, smoke coming down. And it was a camera above us, we were on the floor and the prop guy screwed up and uh, the smoke was coming down as hot liquid oil. And to uh, <laughs> distract ourselves from killing the prop man, we started talking about what, what else should we do with this band, what should we do? Maybe we should do more with this band and thought of uh, this idea. And then we thought, okay, that's a band, but the movie is about kind of a backstage view. So it's like about the roadies and then we went and saw, we went together and saw a movie called Roadie. And uh, we started going to uh, a lot of concerts. Uh, I think we went, the first one was uh, Judas Priest at Long Beach Arena, which is I, the first time. It makes sense. That, yeah. And that was the first time I felt that, the kick drum in my chest. And we sat down, uh, we got a, a deal to write a first draft screenplay from this uh, British company, Marble Arch, Sir Lou Grade, or as I guess it was known in those days, Sir Low Grade. And uh, we got into a hotel room and wrote for three days. I was the typist. And then we looked at each other and said, nobody is going to understand this because we were writing as if it was that movie. And it's just the documentary style and just everything just didn't read right. So we said to each other, this is not a lot of money. Let's just take this money and make a a demo, draw them a picture uh, so they can understand what this is. So we made a 20-minute demo, which some people have seen. A lot of the jokes and most of the songs squeezed in. you know. And uh, we went to every movie major studio in Hollywood, as Rob was a celebrity, he could get us in, and uh, showed them this 20-minute demo. And when the lights came up, it was the same every time. What was that? Well, <laughs> that was a demo for a feature. Oh, rock and roll movies don't make money. So they had no clue. And uh, we were extremely discouraged until a friend of Rob's, as it turned out, he'd, a guy he'd worked for on uh, All in the Family, which was the American version. Oh, of right. America.
2: of, um, yeah. um Alf Garnet. Alf Garnet, yeah. Till death. Yeah. Uh, death. Till Death, yeah. that first two oh. part, yeah.
3: Yeah, and Rob sent it to, to Norman Lear, that is the name of the guy, and he greenlit the project. That's the only reason the movie ever got made. And uh, we decided we wouldn't write a script because we re- wanted it to really feel like a documentary. So it wasn't because we all wanted to do improv. I had never done improv in my life. I'd a, I'm a writer. But we thought that that was the technique that would make the movie feel incredibly really? real. So every, every word of that movie is improvised, except for uh, Dennis Eaton Hogg's toast, because Patrick didn't improvise. So uh. said, write, write, write me a toast. Uh, otherwise everybody was was improvised.
2: It's the comedy equivalent of, of like the, the first Velvet Underground album, where they said, you know, only 300 people bought it, but they all started bands. Every musician has seen that. You've destroyed our business. It's impossible for any of us to take ourselves seriously anymore. The last tour I did with Pink Floyd, which is a long time ago now, I actually carried a yellow card around with me because every time someone made a fucking tap reference, I got the card out. I was so sick and tired <laughs> of it. I can probably count on one hand, and the amount of time since that film came out that I've walked from a dressing room to a stage and someone hasn't said, woo, um, Cleveland. Yeah. <laughs> so you've um, destroyed everything. Exactly. You actually did what the Sex Pistols were meant to do. You killed rock and roll. But,
1: but Guy, we <laughs> played, we, guy, you and I played in Cleveland two years ago and on the wall, as you go to the gig, it's it it. like, hello, Cleveland, written but on But actually, on that, that film,
2: and, I was told that apparently that was based on a true story. That was a Roxy music story.
3: Um, it, it was a bunch of things. I was yeah. in New York, uh, an old friend of mine, uh, who was the manager of the Grateful Dead and they were playing Madison Square oh, wow. Garden and he invited me to come down to see him and Madison Square Garden, as you may know, has two venues in it. And, uh, I'm walking around trying to find the backstage door and I'm walking around and I'm walking around and I finally open a door. And it's the door to the other venue where there's a light heavyweight fight in progress. <laughs> and so that was at least one of the germs of that idea. But to your, to your point, uh, we got punished for that because we have never, I don't think we've ever even been nominated the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but the gift shop at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame sells Hello Cleveland t-shirts.
1: This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by
2: AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily
1: has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system.
2: To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals or you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare, AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of
1: vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me
2: over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription.
1: Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. Where the beauty of it is, and all all the detail of of the Englishness, of of the names, you know. And the history. Getting the evolution of that band in all of the right pop culture moments. You, You guys must have been, Anglophiles, and maybe a lot of that did get missed when you were showing it to American producers. So, Because to us, that was what was so, so detailed and funny.
3: Good point. Um, I mean, we uh, Christopher's dad was English, so he was an Anglophile by birth. Uh, he was a labor lord. He's a lord, uh, that's
2: right, yes. Yeah.
3: But, and Michael and I were just, you know, I think the first, one of the first things we talked about when we first were introduced was the remarkable fact that we both possessed a copy of a record by uh, Stanley Holloway.
2: Oh yeah! Oh Brown wow! Yeah, 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 yeah,
3: Brown shoes. And he had done a record here of English music hall songs, and uh, uh, we both had it. We both had memorized the songs, you know. And you could do a lot of things at the saw. You can't do in town stuff like that <laughs>
1: I love that uh, yeah brand and, shoes listen out for that one it's a particular favorite of mine
3: okay we will do <laughs> um but so I I yeah and we thought the other thing was Christopher had done on a project called National Lampoon Radio Hour he had oh, done see. the Nigel character uh, so he he wanted to bring that character along with him and so we all thought okay well we'll be brits and I, I think it just, it made it funnier to us. Partly because we didn't know. I don't. I think it was before. Well, anyway, I, I was going to make something up. We just make something up. we just thought that was funnier. You know, yeah, you know I'm thinking, funny, because but,
0: I,
2: I don't, I, exactly, I, I don't know if there, if certainly from that period, if if there were American bands you could really lampoon.
3: So. Well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Um, but uh, but British is funny. You know that. Yeah. yeah but I think,
2: um, I think also because, you know, we
1: take our pop music extremely seriously. You know, it's connected to our pop culture. It's connected to youth culture. It's connected to, you know, there are, you know, the, this is the new art form and we're sort of inventing it over in Britain. Mm-hmm, and I think mm-hmm. that seriousness was ready to be
2: pricked, wasn't yeah. it? But yeah. having said that, self-deprecation is built, especially into British comedy in a way that it isn't in American, isn't it?
3: Yeah, but they weren't. Uh, they were They weren't deprecating themselves. No, were, no, no. That's true. Yeah, no, they were, they were completely. deprecated um, by us. Um, yeah. <laughs> but but, but uh, I
1: think, in a way, it's done us all a favor because because maybe since then, you know, if any British band or any member of a band starts to step out of line, yeah, the parody yeah. becomes very obvious, and they're soon hauled back in.
3: It's the sort of damocles over everybody's head. I should I should add that it's not just rockers who do tap references. I, I get stopped by country artists, and even by classical musicians who say, that's what we've got on our bus.
2: <laughs> yeah, but um, well, funny, I saw a thing recently, there's a, like an hour of, un, of, of extra footage or footage that didn't make the film. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing I think is a real shame is such a lovely guy was the support band with uh, what's her name from the Runaways?
3: Oh, Sherry Curry, it's yeah. Sherry
2: Curry, I mean, that's, a, that's an amazing storyline.
3: It is, and, and you know, when you make a movie, uh, at least when you make a comedy. I don't know anything about, it. all I know about drama is you could get away with a shot that's 20 seconds long of a dew drop on a leaf. <laughs> and nobody says, get on with it! Or just, or just, <laughs> um, you have to create a lot of stuff that you love that you then yeah. have to kill for the sake of the the shape of the piece and the pace of the piece. And I mean, that that whole, there was a day when we just realized, because we tried it, we tried a cut of the movie without. We loved that storyline, but yeah. we, there was one day we we tried a cut of the movie without it and showed it to some people, and they laughed at the sores without knowing where the sores came from, and we thought.
1: Oh man, but the sores, you know, the the cold sores. That was the that was the biggest fear I had touring. Uh, and, and, you know, it's it, still to this day, although they seem to not to, to to get in my way too much now. But in the 80s, you know, I was ex- I was exhausted in the 80s. And, and my brother and I, you know, was, you know, my brother's an extremely good looking man. The last thing he wants is a great big black mark on his lip. We used to get them sort of, you know, every tour. And they would they would when I saw that, that you'd actually even picked up on that.
2: You know, I just thought
1: this, this is, the, the detail was extraordinary. Where that comes
2: from, Gary, is the storyline because they've got this girl, who, who, the singer in, in this support band. And one sure. by one, they all get cold sore.
3: And, and the band that they were, the all-girl band was called The Dose. <laughs> we, we, I, and as I say, we, you know, we loved sherry. Uh, and you had but, all that
2: press conference. So that was a, the nineteen sixties press conference as well. Yeah, it was just yeah. fabulous.
3: But when we when we realized that the soars would get laughs and didn't need that whole backstory, we realized.
2: Yeah yeah,
1: yeah yeah. I um the first time I don't know what the first time I'm sure you remember the first time you saw it guy but the first time I saw it was in 1985 on a VHS and it was in Ireland and I it was Joe Elliott had it from Def Leppard. So yeah. he'd never seen it before. So my band Spandau Ballet are sitting down with Def Leppard and we <laughs> watched this program. And <clears throat> I I think I was getting more of the gags than Joe and Def Leppard were. I think there were
2: moments of like but this is just normal right <laughs> no.
3: well at
1: least I, I, in someone
2: told me i, can't, I i'm not going to mention any names but a very a, a record producer told me that he was uh, on a tour bus with a big 70s band in the early and uh, who who were doing a tour which had just been downgraded from arenas to theaters as they were uh, going and someone put that on on the tour bus and no one laughed
3: <laughs> <laughs> well uh i think one of the uh the brothers in Oasis had that that uh, same experience with the film. I believe he actually walked out on
2: uh, <laughs> it. Uh, Liam.
1: Uh, you know, yeah, he walks out on a lot of things, Liam.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, he only walks in so he can walk out. Was
1: there a moment, <laughs> but is there a moment in your life? Because you do, you, you are doing a lot of parody in your life. Here you are. You can actually play. You've toured Spinal Tap. Mm-hmm. Is there ever a bit of you that thinks, but well, I wish I could just go out and do something seriously with a band? And, or, or have you done... Or is, is being serious in, is something you just can't perform
3: with? Um, I've, I've done serious acting. Uh, I was in a play in, in uh, London and in, in the provinces uh, a couple of years ago, which had one laugh. I, in it.
1: I take it back.
3: Oh, that's all right. But as a uh, musician. Huh? Yeah, no, I know what you mean. But no, um, I don't have any musical ideas that aren't uh, based in... Well, I'll, I'll take that back.
2: Well, you I wrote a the... musical, didn't you? Huh? You, wrote, you wrote a musical, did you not?
3: I I written a musical, but I didn't write the music for it. Oh, um okay. uh, I made I did an album. I, I did four albums as myself singing uh, songs that I wrote, but they were all satirical songs. I did an album singing a bunch of songs as Donald Trump, as a matter of fact. The last record that I did as myself, I did write 2 uh, non funny songs. And it's the first time I did anything like that. And uh, one of the songs was an ode, I sort of channeled my nobody will get this reference, but I channeled my uh, inner hoagie Carmichael uh, to write a uh, an anthem about when autumn comes to New Orleans, because you know, summer is so long. And so by the end of it, so painful. That, uh, that first day of autumn is a remarkable thing. And I thought, well, there's been an autumn in New York, but there's never been an autumn in New Orleans. So but
1: I'm New wondering. Orleans is important to you as well, isn't it?
3: I live here, yeah.
1: yeah. And you did a documentary, didn't you, about...
3: I did, about the, why the city flooded. So I, I... And, you know, I don't try to write New Orleans-style music. So as I say, Hoagie Carmichael, who was a Southerner who attained yeah, yeah. success, uh, I sort of kind of channeled that feeling a little bit. And then I wrote a song... Just because I'd been saying this for so many years to explain why I hate cold weather, and the the uh, and it became the chorus of the song: "Heat is only skin deep, but cold is to the bone." And so, huh. um, yeah, well, I find
2: fact. the heat and humidity of New I I I love New Orleans, I adore it, but I find the heat and the humidity nigh unbearable.
3: Well, we have a thing now called air conditioning, mate. Right? <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, we've got to get onto
1: The Simpsons at some point as well, but I just wanted to finish off on tap and just because it wasn't a big hit at first, was it? It, it? it was a slow burner. And was there a great disappointment in, in, with you guys after all the work?
3: It was. Um, we had a, a, as at our backs a film company, which was in the process of a long, slow slide toward bankruptcy and uh, really couldn't support us at all and really didn't know how to promote the film. They, the first ad they, they suggested, there was a, a hit film at the time called Airplane. And the, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. and the visual for that ad was an airplane whose fuselage was tied, tied into a knot. Airplane. yeah, And the geniuses at our film company uh, suggested to us a, an ad where the neck of a guitar was tied into a knot. We said, no, you can't do that. You can't suggest it's the same kind of comedy as Airplane or not. Yeah. Uh, and they said, oh, okay. So they really kind of gave up on promoting it at all. And then to our dismay, the cover of the VHS was a guitar tied in a knot. And uh, so we really got, we, we were doing okay, but there are aspects of the film business that we learned a lot about when we got kicked out of theaters, even though we were doing okay. So I think we were the first non-porn home video to uh, really catch on. And that's what saved our bacon was uh, that home video was just coming along and people could, the wildfire yeah, that happened yeah. in that, in that format. Every in-
1: sensible home had Spinal Tap and Debbie Does Dallas, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> right yeah. have, have you been, have you been uh, recording Simpsons during the pandemic? Is that all still going
3: yeah, on? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be one of the people who was working all through the pandemic for three 31 years, I was saying to them, you know, I have a studio in my house. You could let me record there. No, oh, no, you have to come in. We have special microphones and a special thing.
2: Yeah, character oh, mics.
3: March of last <laughs> year, please record in your house. And here's the microphone.
1: <laughs> so, but before, wasn't The Simpsons, the idea was that you were in the same room as... Listen, it's impossible. It's not like you're in the same room as other actors playing other characters. You're playing about six characters. You're having a conversation with
3: yourself during recording.
2: Because you? Yeah, you do Burns and Smithers. Apparently you do that. You can, you can do that in as, real time. A, as a regular conversation, yeah.
3: Um, wow. Yeah, I mean, we were in the same room until, you know, everybody or a lot of us got got busy uh, and uh, couldn't be there at, that, at all at the same time. So, uh,
1: and the Fox or Dis- Disney is now, or whatever it is, do they have sort of contracts with you saying you can't do the voice on any other channel or any in, in any other format?
3: Um, Owns those
1: voices. That's you know, it's uh,
3: I have I have not read uh, uh, such a such a clause if it exists in in our contract. Um, I think somewhere it says that they own them, but uh, I I don't know.
2: So would it be incredibly awful of us to ask for a quick burst or something, you <laughs> sir? Uh, stepping over your bounds. Release
1: <laughs> <Yes, laughs> the helms. Yay! Ah! <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, okay. Yeah, we've just sent the bank details. Yeah. Up. But, but I hear that, that one particular upsets your, your throat. You can't do it for too long, right?
3: No, only it got rough when we were doing um, the uh, video games, and it would just be me alone in a room for four hours. And the only direction I'd get from uh, the producer was louder. And, and that, starts, <laughs> that starts to hurt after a while.
1: Were you part of the show when it went back? Because I seem to remember the beginning being in the early nineties, or was it when, when with Tracy Allman?
3: Yeah, it was part and of the late, Tracy Allman. That's
2: shot. right. Yeah, it was a it was a segment. Yeah, we on it then. That's right. It was a
3: f- yeah. Uh, I was second. in it until, until it became its own show. I had, and this is one of the peculiarities of, I guess, this thing called life. I was called to do the two minute segment in the Tracy Ullman show. And they wanted me to do something as myself. And at the time I was really like, uh, had my head up my ass about, well, I only do characters. It was really just because I didn't feel comfortable on camera as myself. I didn't know how to play me. So uh, we went around on that a couple of times. And then I just said, "Yeah, I don't think this worked. And the next person they they called, I guess, was Matt. So, and then he called, through an intermediary, intermediary me uh, when uh, the, the show is uh, going to a full show. So it's it's peculiar how all that happened.
2: That's interesting. So what you're saying, so th- this was the first time you've ever done a voice that wasn't a person who existed, if you know what I mean.
3: I'm, I do know. No, an, an I'm, yeah. I'm just thinking if that's true. I've played characters on screen that didn't exist. That's true, uh, yeah. I've always had somebody in mind to be, so I, I did a, a, uh, a guest shot on Miami Vice and I had an idea in my head of who I was doing. He wasn't a famous person, but it was, I've always had a model mainly, except for that play. Uh, I, that was somebody I, I did out of whole cloth.
2: Sorry, so in, in that case, so who is Derek Smalls? Um, Derek Smalls was just
3: every British rocker that I heard in my head kind of smooshed together.
1: <laughs> and did we, when you joined what? the names did they, did they have to give you one character or Did they immediately say you've got six characters get on with it
3: um i think matt was a fan of my radio show and he knew i did a bunch of characters so i think the whole premise of me being there was from the top i was going to be doing a bunch of characters um i don't remember how many on the in the first script but it was clearly uh, it was a multi-character gig
1: I, I don't know whether you want to talk about this anyway but i know you've just lost Dr. Hibbert, you're no longer doing Dr. Hibbert. That's okay with you, I guess. That's, um, that's a tough one to talk about, really.
3: It's been an interesting experience um, to hear one's uh, character be done by somebody else. I guess uh, Mel Blank didn't, didn't have to do that. Didn't have to, wasn't around to hear the new Porky, um, but, uh, or, the, <laughs> or the improved Bugs. But uh, all, I, all I ever say about that is uh, it is the actor's job to play somebody that they're not.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I still can't get over it. And I only actually found this out for, because to be to be honest, I haven't watched The Simpsons for a while. I mean, I devoured it for years, mm-hmm. but then, uh, and then I, cause I just got worried. You just think it can't keep being funny, surely. But um, I, I've only just recently found out this thing of of Principal Skinner turning out to be an imposter.
3: And that was a, I, an episode. That was that episode in season 12. I invade fairly dramatically against that. I said, uh, yeah. we've got the audience knowing this character for 12 years, and now we're telling the audience, screw you, 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 you fell for something, and it's not true. And, you know, I, I thought it was rude to the audience to do that.
2: No, I agree. Because uh, I loved his whole background, the whole Nam thing. Was, yeah. uh, the th- and, thin uh, gruel with four kinds of rice that he was forced yeah. to live on. <laughs> and uh, it's
3: now sort of a ghost episode. Nobody talks about it. And you write,
2: sorry, sorry. Do you
3: write any of that? TV is a writer's medium. They don't want to, to improvise there. I did uh, about three or four years ago, write One episode, but um, I'm not a fan of the process. You know, I am at a point in my life where I think I'm a, a pretty good writer and I, I, I don't like my stuff being, uh, Run through a room full of 16 writers, so I have to get a joke in. So,
1: I have to say, from my point of view, that and how, the importance of the Simpsons is—I mean, my youngest child, the first time he ever heard one of my songs was actually in the Simpsons. <laughs> so he's forever associated it with comedy, which isn't uncommon, probably. Yeah, <laughs> and well. and also my eldest child who's who'd, who'd seen it all, seen them all of them. You know, he would sit and have dinner with us when he was a, a small kid and he'd come up with the most profound statements, politically, scientifically, philosophically. And everyone would turn and say, where did you get that? The Simpsons.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I, it is an educational show um, yeah. <laughs> in a lot of ways.
1: <laughs> we, we can't keep you all night. And what's, what's frustrating yeah. is that your your diversity is incredible. You know, you've had an art exhibition, you know. yeah documentaries and books, and, and but I particularly wanted to just talk about quickly the, the Richard Nixon series that oh, you've, you've yeah. done, because what the premise is that, that they're all found tapes. Is it true?
3: Uh, well, the, the, the tape recordings, the dialogue, the conversations are all from the collection of tapes that Richard Nixon ran on himself.
1: They're hysterical.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and my co-writer on that project was a history professor at University of Wisconsin, who had to file a lawsuit to get access to the tapes. Nixon and his family were claiming that they owned the tapes. And my partner, Stanley, claimed accurately that they were recorded on government tape machines managed by members of the United States Navy and stored in government warehouses. And therefore, we, the American public, owned them. And he prevailed. Nixon... Who was running tape on himself because he thought this would, when in his later years, when he was doing his uh, memoirs, he would use them as reference points. He never dreamed they'd be made public. And uh, I used to go whenever I would go to Washington, which I did a lot because my godson lives there. I'd go listen to the tapes. I'd put on crappy little library headphones and and listen to these conversations. And so the premise of the of the TV show was although we couldn't say it, but it was the way it looked and the way it felt is that he had uh, hidden cameras in the White House as well as microphones. And we rehearsed the shit out of these conversations because I was determined that we had this great gift from Nixon, a, a, mm-hmm. a monster in every way as, as much as Trump was. Uh, and we had to pay due respect to this gift by getting it absolutely right. And so... The conversations were, you know, the rhythms were right. When people talked over each other or the pauses, that was all right. And the crew made uh, a a, a 360-degree set of Richard Nixon's Oval Office. So when you walked in, you didn't see cameras, you didn't see lights. And it was amazing to see the effect that had on the other actors as they walked into that set and really walked into that world. It really changed them.
1: And the combination of sycophancy and stupidity is so mind blowing.
3: Well, it, yeah, it's 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 an elegant recipe. And Kissinger, Henry Kissinger, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, yeah.
1: played by Henry Goodman, who's
3: played by Henry Goodman. Right, right. Uh, Kissinger was the, maybe for all time the sycophant uh, of sycophants. Uh, he and Nixon kind of loathed each other. Uh, Nixon loathed what K- Kissinger was, which was a Harvard professor and a Jew and Kissinger loathed Nixon for being, not Kissinger. Uh, and, um, <laughs> and it was so much fun to do that. So, such hard work, four hours of makeup, but um, killer, killer fun.
2: But it's also, it's funny what you said, because it's always this thing of how Nixon had those tapes and uh, he had every, cameras and, and, and machine and he was recording everything. And it, and it goes back to exactly what you've been talking about, which is uh, Biden probably just has Alexa. <laughs>
3: yeah yeah. I, I i do wonder about that if they <laughs> if they allow alexa or any of those or even <laughs> even siri in the white house I, I hope not we i was i was on a road trip once where we uh asked siri to uh we spoke dirty to siri and saw <laughs> what happened there the people at apple did anticipate that that would happen i have to say oh yeah i'm sure they did
1: <laughs> harry thank you so much yeah for, for coming on. I no, mean, right. I, feel, I feel bad that we didn't speak about half the things you've done in your life because there's so many.
3: Well, I, I'm writing my memoir, so you'll, you'll get to
1: And your there. website yeah. is fantastic. Anyone who, who, uh, who wants to know more about you should just go there, right?
3: Thank you. And I have to say your biggest hit, I guess, uh, was ubiquitous when I was in England doing my research just before we shot the movie. I went on the road with Saxon when I came back to London, I was walking around, checking stuff out, checking what football jersey to what, what football team to be a supporter. What Derek would be a supporter of, and I, I <laughs> and that song was ubiquitous.
1: Maybe I've got you to thank that it's been in The Simpsons three times. I <laughs> guess. <laughs> uh that was there's just too much information there isn't there with him Uh, yeah i mean listen i'm sure some of our listeners would be happy if we just spoke spinal tap from for for an hour
2: Uh, you know what the funny thing is i i came i had all these spinal tap things i wanted to say and then i kind of forgot most of them but also because there's just so much else you want to talk about
1: you know, he has a lot that's gone on in his life other than Spinal Tap, you know. it's uh, But, you know, listen, it's still one of the greatest rock movies ever made, and I think that's certainly a good enough excuse to get him on the show.
2: No, absolutely. No, we're all doomed to walk in its shadow for forever.
1: Anyway, thank you for listening. Um, just uh, to say how much we, we like the feedback we get from you on Twitter and Instagram and in any other way you give us feedback. Uh, behind our backs. <laughs> and so uh, we'll see you next week. And it's good night from me. And it's good night from uh, me. <laughs>
0: Hold up.